Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. In the past two decades, sports media and the coverage devoted to sports has both exploded and fragmented. At any time of the day, fans can find coverage of their favorite teams and players in multiple different mediums and from various different voices. While we often now think of social media or video content, when we hear the term sports media, at its core, that media still starts with journalism, something our guest today, Kaylin Kaler, knows a ton about. Kaylin is a senior writer for The Athletic, covering the NFL. Prior to joining The Athletic, Kaylin worked as a staff writer for Defector and Sports Illustrated, where she worked her way up from an editorial assistant and personal assistant to Peter King. Kaylin's work has appeared in multiple publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, and Bleacher Report, just to name a few. Kaylin received a notable selection in the 2020 edition of Best American Sports Writing for a piece on how a cow becomes a football and won the Pro Football Writers of America Enterprise News Feature Writing Award in 2021 for a feature that she did. Kaylin holds a degree in journalism from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. We're always honored to have former Northwestern students on the podcast, especially when they provide such great insight like Kaylin. So we hope you all enjoy Austin's interview with Kaylin Kaylin. Kayla, thank you for joining us. I really thanks for having me, Austin. Yeah, of course. I, you know, I try and and keep these pretty evergreen with the questions, but because I'm headed to the United Center quite literally as soon as we hop off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Northwestern basketball and more more so frame that in terms of is that one of the teams that you can watch and kind of turn off your reporter your reporter mode and just kind of be a fan and, and enjoy it that way. Yeah, it is for sure because I don't really cover basketball. I don't know that I've ever, I've written one WNBA story in my um, career as a journalist. And I don't think I've ever written a college basketball story. So uh, yeah, when I watch Northwestern basketball, I am definitely a fan. Um, I went to one game this season because it was so expensive to go to Walsh Ryan. It was crazy. I'm like, okay, I guess this is a good thing about being good. But also it's terrible to try to go to a game, but I did get to go to one game this year where I got into the Wilson club, pulled some strings. So that was really fun. And it was the um, Iowa game, which was uh, like the end of probably the best week of Northwestern basketball history uh, ever, you know, with three big 10 wins in one week, that was really cool. So that was a really fun game to be at. Yeah. I was at that one too. And it was just crazy to walk in and see the student section full, like an hour before it's off. I could not believe that, but yeah. um, Getting more on track with what I wanted to ask you about. I think I've been following your career for for a while, obviously, since I was in college and between Sports Illustrated and being one of the first writers to join the team at uh, Defector and now on to The Athletic. So what do you have the opportunity to do in this, this new role as a senior NFL writer with The Athletic that you haven't had before in your career? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, one example, which is a very specific example, is I haven't yet been able to go to the owners meetings um, because I've never been a beat writer um, and I was never 
at Sports Illustrated, I mean, I guess if I had asked to go to the owners meetings, I probably could have gone, but we always sent our more senior writers. When I was there, I was a little bit more junior. So um, this year, it's in two weeks from now, I'll, be, I'll get to go to the owners meetings, which is cool and something I just haven't had an opportunity to do before. So I would say that's probably the, the biggest thing. I mean, not much else has really changed. I'm still covering the league. I've always covered the league nationally. I've never uh, paid attention to like one specific team um, as a beat writer. So I've always kind of come at the league from a different perspective uh, than a lot a lot of writers do because most, I would say most writers probably, this is probably still true, that most writers start on a beat um, and I never did that. So it's really honestly not that much different at The Athletic than it has been at Defector or at um, Sports Illustrated. I would say Defector was my most different role because they cover anything and everything. So I wrote a lot of personal essays there, which was really awesome. And I actually really missed that a lot. That was cool to be able to like exercise that uh, part of my brain that I really hadn't been able to do before instead of develop a, a style and a tone and a voice. Uh, so that was really cool. And like, I think that was really rewarding and valuable for me because I got to write about like my jaw surgery. I got to write about, um, I wrote like a travel blog when I went on vacation last year and had an interesting adventure and wrote about that. Um you know, wrote like a first person from the same vacation. I went to a PSG game in Paris and something weird happened at the game. So I was like, I know I'm on vacation, but I kind of want to write about this. So I wrote like a quick blog about that. And like, I mean, I probably could still do that at the athletic, but it's just different because there's not as much room for that sort of personal, you know, I'm writing about something just because I feel like writing about it. Uh, but there's not necessarily like a news peg here that there's not a lot of that that goes on at the athletic. So I would say Defector was probably my most different role. Yeah, it definitely seems like you have to work out two different parts of your brain when you're in a role at the athletic where you're reporting and breaking news. And the, the Defector positions, like you said, was a lot more personal. I know the the, the jaw surgery piece definitely resonated with me. Yeah. So you had reconstructive jaw surgery. It was, it was pretty restorative to read about somebody else's experience. And I mean, the, the honesty there, I think is what stood out because it's not, it's not a glamorous process. I'm glad I had it. I think the results were, were worth it, but when you're in it, it's, it's tough. So what kind of inspired that, that story? And, and what was it like to kind of be so open and honest in a piece like that? Yeah, well, I was, um, taking a journal the whole, I was writing in a journal the whole time. Cause it was just so terrible that like, I was like, I really need to remember like how awful this is and like how bad I'm feeling. And it wasn't even like starting with surgery. It was like two months before surgery. I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is, I don't want to do this. Like I'm dreading it. I was having a lot of anxiety and never had surgery before. So I, as a writer, obviously like the way that we cope with things is by writing. So, um, I was doing, I had like a handwritten journal that actually I still write updates in as this like progresses, <clears throat> excuse me, as my recovery progresses. So, uh, I just had already pretty much written it in my journal. So I was like, well, I might as well, um, you know, type this up and make it a personal blog. And my editor, Barry was like, I was telling him, Hey, I'm going to write something. And he was like, okay, like, what's the angle? Like this sucks. And I was like, pretty much. Yeah. Like that's the angle. And it kind of, it became more than that, obviously like it, but it pretty much was just like, this happened to me and it sucks. And I want you to know about it because it was horrible. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty much the only way that I could cope with it was like through humor and like writing down all of the like insane things that happened and like the funny things that happened. So 
that's why I wrote that blog. And I was like, honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to write this regardless. Like if, you know, Barry thinks it's like too depressing to publish, then like, that's fine. But obviously he really liked it. And he was like, oh my God, like, (laughs) you know, wow. And I think I wrote it too, because it's hard. People like didn't really understand um, exactly like how, uh, serious the surgery is, um, and how long the recovery is and like how, like just how serious it is. Like, I think a lot of people didn't really get it. And so once I wrote it, they were like, Oh, like, this is why you couldn't come to my wedding. And I'm like, yeah, this is why I could not come to your wedding. Or this is why I missed your bachelorette party, you know? So it actually helped. Cause I was able to like send it to people who were maybe like annoyed with me that I didn't go to their events. And I'm like, no, I literally cannot go to your event. Yeah. I definitely have friends who thought I had plastic surgery and I'm like, you don't have to bite into a hamburger before I had it. Like it was, (laughs) I didn't choose to do this. Um, But, and I would never get plastic surgery now because I'm like, I will never do anything to my face ever again. It was so horrible. It makes everything else easier. Like I go to the dentist and they're like, do you, are you okay if we, you know, go around in your mouth and mess around with your teeth. And I'm like, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's not, that's nothing anymore. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that reading the comments on a story is ever a good idea. Did you hear any feedback from people on yeah. that, especially who had been through it as well? Well, I would say defector comment, commentator, commenters are amazing. Like they are really smart, super insightful. It's rarely like a bad experience going into the comment section there. It's usually like really like people really appreciate your work and you can tell that they appreciate it. So that's another awesome thing that's super unique about Defectors. They just have such a um, defined community that the commenters there are just always really good. They get it. They they know what you're trying to do when you write something and um, it's really supportive. But on that one in particular, there was like a lot of people who were like, holy shit. And like, um, I don't know if we can swear on this, but you can bleep me out. Um, <laughs> they were like, holy crap. And then, um, you know, saying things like, like your experience. There were a lot of people like you who were like, oh, I also had a jaw surgery or, you know, my friend did, or my son did, or, uh, you know, I had a terrible, um, oral surgery, something else experience. So there were a lot of people in the comments who were really, um, relating to what I wrote and like really happy that I did write it. Well, I want to talk about a few of your stories, uh, today. And the, the, the one that I think came out most recently is the piece on that you co-wrote at the athletic on Russell Wilson and his first season in Denver. Yeah. And I know that was obviously, uh, uh, a, headline making story for a lot of reasons, but what was kind of the, the very first conversation you had with your, your colleagues that kind of gets the ball rolling on a, on a massive story like that? Well, actually Mike Sando and Jason Jenks had started it long before I came into the picture. Um, the, just the Seattle part they had started and for whatever reason, there were like some sourcing things that they had to really nail down and figure out. So when they started it, you know, months ago, um, it wasn't ready. Like they were, it wasn't at a point where they could publish it. So as time went by, obviously the season goes on, Nathaniel Hackett gets fired. Um, at that point, I think it was right after he got fired or maybe right before he got fired. Cause like everyone knew he was going to get fired. Um, you know, late in the season, probably sometime in December, uh, Jason was like, Hey, you know, do you have any Broncos sources? And I was like, kind of, it's, they're not great, but like, 
you also don't like a common misconception is that you need to have sources already to like do a story like this. Like you really don't. All you have to do is just call people, get phone numbers and call people. Um, you don't have to have any, like, I literally, I don't think I had a single pre-existing Broncos aside from the PR department. Like, I don't know that I had a single pre-existing cause it was a whole new staff there. So I was like, I don't think I know anybody on this staff, like on the coaching staff. And that didn't end up mattering. You know, we, we were able to talk to several different coaches, several different players who were there. Um, and so, yeah, so they were like, Oh, do you have any Broncos sources? Can you help us uh, flesh this out? Cause they had the Seattle part at the beginning and they had the big nugget about, um, you know, Russell asking for John Schneider and Pete Carroll to be fired. So they already had that. And they were like, we need to, you know, build this out with what happened the rest of this year in Denver. And I was like, oh, of course, happy to help. So that's where I came into the picture in December, just to really do all, a bunch of the, I didn't do all of the Denver reporting, but I did probably most of it. Um, so that's where I came in to sort of understand, like, why were they so bad? Like what was happening? Like how much control did he have on the offense? Like, um, you know, what was Hackett allowing Russell to do that wasn't working? Like what did players think? What did coaches think? All of that kind of stuff. So that's how that came together. So I just came in at the end to do that. To do that. When you're working on a piece like that, that is reliant on, on sourcing and having contacts in different organizations, why do you think people are willing to go on record or contribute as an anonymous source? Like what are the different motivations that bring somebody to the table to talk to you for a story like that? A lot of times I don't know. I mean, I'm always like, what I'm most of the time I'm like, I can't believe this person is talking to me. Like just last week I was at the combine and having a super long conversation with someone I did not know previously at all. Like I'd never met this person in my life. And they were telling me a lot of things that, I was like, what, how did I get here? Like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, some people just like, I kind of liken it sometimes to like the role of a therapist where you're just like listening, you're asking questions, but you're just kind of there to like catch whatever they want to like say. And some people are just not going to talk to you and you just have to accept that and, you know, let them move on. Um, I always try to keep people on the phone for like at least five minutes, because I feel like if you can just keep them, responding to you, um, for five minutes, like the chances are good that they're going to just keep talking. Um, so I always try to like say something like, don't let them get off the phone too quick, but you know, sometimes you can't avoid that. Some people are just going to hang up or say no under no circumstance, whatever. But I think the people who do talk, it's partly like therapeutic and like cathartic, um, especially after like a confusing season, like Denver had, like there were, I think there were a lot of people who were like, Russell's taking too much blame. And then there, like a lot of players were like, it wasn't all Russell's fault. And then a lot of coaches were like, it wasn't all the coaches fault. You know what I mean? So there were like two sides trying to sort of um, explain what happened from their perspective, because they felt like what had already been in the media, like maybe wasn't necessarily the whole story. Um, So then obviously it's our job as reporters to just present both sides and like kind of find out what the middle is. And like, that's probably, the, you know, that's the truest version is uh, what's it, what's in the middle of what both sides or all three sides or however many sides there are, are telling you. Um, so I think in the case of this story, I think people were just like wanting to clarify like why the season was so bad. And also 
it helped that like everyone was fired. So then, you know, I mean, some of the players we talked to are return, like still there or returning, but um, a lot of, the, I mean, obviously most of the coaches were fired. I'm not sure how many coaches were retained by Sean Payton, but not many. So most of the coaches knew, okay, you know, like my, I'm not coming back here. So like, there's no uh, like concrete repercussions for me to like really reveal what happened. So that always helps when people are fired because there's less of a fear of like, you know, retribution, like they're not going to get fired again um, for talking to you. So that, that always helps. And then it puts a little bit of a distance too, where they're like able to kind of process what happened and look back. And I think that's part of it too, is like people, um, during the season, the NFL season is just, you're living day by day, you're living week by week, like, and so reporters we are too, but like, you can't really spend that much time, like looking back at like what happened in week two, because you've got to move on to Cincinnati as Bill Belichick would say. So, um, yeah. So I think that's part of it is like people, when you start asking questions, they they're like, Oh, you know what? I do kind of want to like process exactly what the problem here was. I know a lot of our students hopefully are going to go on to become, you know, ADs and sports agents and work in front offices and working with the media is a huge part of any of those roles. So is there anything that you think folks in sports get wrong or misunderstand about kind of building a relationship with the media? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I think I, whenever I talk to coaches who are like trying to um, build their career or like you know, climb the ladder. Like they want to be a head coach someday. Um, I always tell them like, don't ignore the media. Like it can, you can get to the top but, and never speak to a reporter and also like treat them like crap. It's possible. Like there are definitely people who have done it and do it. It's not like you're going to prevent yourself from moving up if you do that. But um, you are going to, I mean, it's just like human it's natural, like human science. I don't, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but like just relationship dynamics, um, you know, as reporters, we're obviously not going to like trade favors with you as a GM or a coach, but, or you, we shouldn't be doing that. Some people would, um, but that's not how our jobs work. So we're not going to like trade favors and like write something really nice about you because like you, you know, remembered it was my birthday last week or something like that's, you know, that's not like, it's not a one for one in that way, but just naturally, like if you build a relationship with a reporter and you're on the hot seat, the coverage about you is probably going to be nicer um, than it would be if you've just, you know, been like a Jim Beheim to the media and just, you know, ruthlessly and for no reason been kind of rude to reporters like that's so when I'm when I'm talking to coaches or people who are like how do I you know how do I improve how do I move up or like what can I do better because I'll get asked that a lot by people in the business like you know how should I be talking to reporters or this or that and I'm like yeah I mean it's just comes down to like being a nice person um you don't have to like go out of your way to leak information to media um some people will and that can be strategic at times but you don't have to do that you just have to you know, uh, recognize that we have jobs to do and help us do them when you can. And then also just be like a nice person. So that means, you know, not mocking a question that you get asked in a press conference, because most questions that we ask in press conferences or in general are like, 
usually good. I mean, obviously every once in a while, there is kind of a question that might be out of line or, um, you know, asked in a aggressive or, you know, insensitive fashion. And then you'll see, you'll see coaches or general managers or whoever the subject is players react accordingly. But I feel like a lot of times, um, you just have to understand, like, you might not want the question, but you're getting the question because fans want to know, or it's a pressing topic. So there's a lot of ways to give a non-answer. So you can do that nicely. So I, I would say that's probably my advice is just like treat the media with respect and understand, like, we're not being like annoying, pesky, nosy for no reason. Like it's, it's our job. Like another thing that that must come up, and you touched on it earlier, is having never been a, a beat writer. There's definitely a dynamic between national and local media that I think could be interesting, especially as the NFL season ratchets up towards the playoffs. How have you kind of negotiated that dynamic of when you're when you're covering a team, you're not necessarily there every single day, and that can be, I think, good and bad because sometimes during a a trying season, you see the, the the tension build up in those weekly press conferences. But I guess what are the the benefits and maybe the drawbacks of having more of a national perspective on the league? I think um, I see it as mostly a benefit. Um, and actually, the nice thing about being at The Athletic is that if I have a story idea on about a specific team and I'm like, I think this is a story, but I'm not sure, you know, I can ask the beat writers and say, Hey, like, what do you guys think of this? And, you know, the advantage I have is that I could spend longer on a topic than anyone on a beat can, because the nature of their job is they've got to cover everything that happens with the team. And that, you know, there's never a dull moment. Things don't stop. So for example, like there were two stories I did this year, um, a Packers story about Aaron Rodgers and how he interacts with his rookies and how the, how rookies basically get incorporated into the offense and like how it's really difficult. Um, and then a second one that I did on the Eagles and the quarterback sneak that they uh, kind of redesigned this year to uh, unprecedented success rates. And both of those stories, I'm not, I'm not saying I have better ideas than beat writers, but it's hard when you're on a beat like the Eagles guys were seeing this sneak probably every week and then it became boring to them. Like they were like, okay, they're doing this all the time, whatever. And a couple of people on the beat wrote short stories about it. Like they were like, okay, here's this thing. It's a little bit different. Cool. And they were valuable. They were valuable stories in the moment, but I purposely actually didn't read any of those stories because I was confident that I was going to like, really go deep on this one play and like figure out why people were mad about it and figure out why it was different and figure out why it was working so well. And like, I wanted to like tear it inside out and just find out everything I could about the play. So I purposely didn't read anything because I was like, I know Eagles writers have probably written about this, but I specifically didn't read anything about it because I didn't want to be like talked out of my own idea just because somebody wrote something shorter because I was like, no, I know that like, I'm going to do something different on this. Um, so I purpose, a lot of times I will read things done on the topic just to make sure I'm not overlapping, but in that D idea in particular, I was like, I'm not going to read anything about this. Cause I know it's going to like, uh, mess with me. And it's going to make me think that like, I shouldn't do this story because whatever they wrote was already done and like, not that interesting. So, um, I didn't, do, so in that, that was purposeful. I didn't read anything, but with the, with the, uh, 
you know, but that was helpful when I asked our beat writers, I was like, Hey, like, I really want to go deep on this. I'm hearing this. Like, what do you guys think? And they're like, Oh no, that would be a good idea. And I'm like, have you guys written anything about it? And they're like, not really. I'm like, okay, great. Um, cause they'll tell you if you're like off track too, obviously. So, and then the Packers story, I think too, like the benefit of me not being on the beat is that I don't have to worry about, um, Aaron Rodgers liking me. Um, and honestly, that story was not even like, it was not even a takedown of him in any capacity. Everyone quoted was on the record. Um, people were just saying like, this is a difficult offense because of all the signals that he uses. And they were describing the way that he and the coaches there teach the signals, which is, uh, they don't teach them very thoroughly. Like it's kind of like a learn as you go type of thing. And again, like it wasn't that negative, but you know, people on that beat, you know, they, they are seeing the same things that I'm seeing. They're seeing the rookies receivers struggling. They're hearing Aaron calling them out in press conferences and they're covering that as it's happening, but they have to worry about, you know, is Aaron going to answer my question at the next press conference that I need to ask him a question for? Whereas I don't need to worry about that because I don't have to go to green Bay every day. So for me, I'm like, if he has a negative reaction to this story, it's fine because that doesn't, uh, that's not going to um, have a daily impact on my job. And he did have a very negative reaction to the story. And if I had been on the beat there, I'm sure that would have been an issue. Um, but yeah. And then like, I don't know. And I think too, when you're on a beat, like you, not that you get like conditioned to what you're seeing, but you do kind of, cause you're there every day. So you're like, well, he's always been like this or you know, um, yeah, like the rookie, it's, you're like, it's week 13. Like it takes a while to get into an offense, but then me on the national side, I'm like, it's week 13. And these receivers don't feel like Aaron trusts them yet. Cause I asked one of them, I asked Romeo, I'm like, have you earned Aaron Rodgers trust? And he's like, I don't know. And to me, that was like a really interesting thing to hear. And I don't think if you're on the beat, I don't think you're asking that question anymore. I think that was a question that you asked during the preseason or during training camp. And then you kind of moved on because that's the nature of the job. But like for me, since I'm not there every day, I can come in and ask those same questions later and then be like, oh, this is still really interesting and important. Uh, yeah, so that was a long answer, but that's kind of how I view it. Well, you touched on it too. I mean, something I think our, our students talk about a lot is the power of networking and the, the role that can have in your career. But I think it's inevitable in your line of work that you're going to write things that that upset people. And is there yeah. is there a thought when you're sitting down to to publish something about okay, this might mean that John Doe is less likely to answer the phone the next time I have a question about something, or this could a professional friendship might take a hit. Is that is that a factor at all for you? Um, you consider it, but the way that you handle it is not by, you know, obviously you have to make sure everything you're reporting is like really sourced well so that nobody can come questioning you. And that's why I was surprised by the negative reaction from Aaron, because there were no anonymous sources. Like I wasn't hiding behind anything. Like everyone said what they said and they said it on the record. So I was kind of surprised that he had such a negative reaction to the story because it was, you know, not because it's very easy to criticize a anonymously sourced story because you're like, oh, well, nobody would even put their name on it. Like, you can't believe any of that. But this one was like fully on the record. So I was like, okay, that's really interesting. I didn't expect that. But I think the way you handle it, like, uh, for example, the Broncos story with Russell Wilson, um, the way you handle that story, obviously we had to go to the Broncos PR department, um, PR 
the head of their PR staff to tell them, Hey, we're doing, I mean, he knew we were doing the story because people were tattling on us throughout the process. So like he already knew that we were working on this, but you had to go to them with enough time for them to respond and enough time for them to like give you whatever they want to give you either on background or, um, you know, they gave us Jerry, Judy and Kendall Hinton to talk to, uh, hadn't talked to them before I went to the Broncos PR department. So you just have to keep people aware of what you're doing. Like you can't just go publish something without, um, unless it's, I mean, you can, you can publish a game story. Sure. But you can't go publish a, um, something that you have reporting that you feel there needs to be a response to, or just a heads up. That's how you maintain relationships in the business. And, um, you know, the way that we worked with Broncos PR, I think went really well. And some, some PR staffs are not, they don't respond in the same way and they'll try to talk you out of things and they'll try to say, Hey, this isn't a story and like use bully scare tactics, things like that. But with the Broncos, you know, we went to them, we said, Hey, this is what we're working on. You know, you run down kind of a list of reporting that you have that you feel they may need to, they may want to respond to, and then you hear them out and whatever they say that is interesting to you, you, you know, or you, or you find to be, okay, that's fair. Like this is balanced. This helps balance it out more. You include that. Um, and then if they want you to talk to someone, you talk to them. Um, and then you include, you know, obviously it's up to us after we talked to Jerry, Judy and Kendall Hinton, like, what do we want to use from them? We decide that, but you know, he, the Broncos wanted to give us those two players. And so he said, okay, great. We'd love to talk to them. So that's how you sort of, um, handle it. Like there's ways to publish, um, you know, controversial things or things that people are going to be mad about without burning bridges. And you just have to have an open line of communication and make sure that you're doing your job the the way that you're supposed to be doing your job and not ambushing people or, you know, surprising them with things that they didn't get a chance to respond to. Definitely. And, you know, I think one of the, one of my favorite things about you know, kind of your writing and your reporting is that we've touched on stories about Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, but you've also covered kind of the the fringes of the NFL universe, so to speak, with like the the Prospect X series. I know that was a couple of years ago, but I love that one. Obviously, being from Cleveland, learning that it was Drew Forbes after the fact. Yeah. Cool. And then um, the the piece, the series that you did, uh, QB two interviewing different backup quarterbacks. Is that, uh, an intentional approach to kind of look at these, these things happening in the NFL that might not get covered in the same way as like, you know, quarterbacks who are in the spotlight every week or players who are kind of blowing up at the combine. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, like I've just always like free agency doesn't interest me at all. Like what's going on right now. Like obviously Aaron Rodgers is an interesting, I'm like, I'm excited to see what happens, but, um, I don't feel a need to be like minute by minute, like, you know, being updated and like seeing where, you know, the dolphins are restructuring Tyreek Hill's contract. Uh, you know, I just don't really care. Like that's just like, not that interesting to me. And like, same with, I mean, the top draft prospects and how the draft shakes out is interesting. I think that's more interesting than free agency, but uh, I don't feel compelled to go write about Will Levis. I, I don't know. I'm just like, great. I, like, I don't know. He, cool. But I'm not like really interested in like going to like profile him or like, you know, figure out who's going to draft him. I like, the, I think the draft is really, really interesting because of just the 
the thing that it is. And like, it's way more interesting outside of like the first round, in my opinion. So um, all of the players involved, all the agents involved, like I'm working on a story right now about how NIL has impacted the quarterbacks in this draft. And a lot of them went back to school. So the depth in this quarterback draft class is like a lot less than it would have been in a different year um, because a lot of them received like the same amount of money to go back to school as they would have if they were drafted in the fifth or sixth round. So those are the stories that interest me kind of like the ins and outs of the process, because it is such an interesting process. And I find that to be more interesting than like uh, just who, who's going to be the number one pick. I think it's more interesting to sort of uh, see the trends in the draft. Like there's been a weird trend in the last few drafts because of COVID. Like one was like the oldest draft class last year. They were really old last year because they all got the extra year of eligibility and probably they're still old this year too. Um, They will be for next, I think next year is the last year of that extra year. Um, And then I wrote one about like the COVID year. It was the thinnest draft class ever. Like there was like 700 players in it, which is about half the size of a normal draft class. So uh, or a pool, half the size of the normal pool of players that you're drafting from. So that was really interesting to me too, because of how the pandemic affected the draft and guys wanting to stay in school. So, yeah, I think I do kind of purposely go for ideas that like aren't top of mind one, because I have less competition on them and it's easier to just, you know, work on things that, you know, other people aren't really working on. And then two, because I just, I talked to a lot of like, lower level people in the NFL, like scouts, um, lower level coaches. Like I'm not regularly speaking to head coaches and GMs. So I think that helps too, because those people have like different ideas than, you know, people who are in charge. Well, I think the last thing that I have for you, and it's another kind of overarching question, is the the NFL, especially. It seems like this this dichotomy between things that are are so serious and so meaningful. And I think of like that. It was an intro video before the Patriots played the Jaguars with John Malkovich. It was a couple of years ago, but I think it really captured like how self serious a lot of NFL coverage can be. But there are also things that happen every day that are just so so silly and so ridiculous, like. The Jacksonville Jaguars having like a rat problem. So in your yeah. role, when you have to kind of balance the two, how do you hold both those ideas where you approach storytelling seriously, but you're also comfortable laughing at some of the absurd things that happen every day? Yeah, I think Defector is really good at that. Um, I haven't done as much of that in my writing at The Athletic, um, but Defector is so good at like finding the amusing aspects of the NFL and like, you know, putting attention on them, just like in short little things, like what Ray Ratto wrote there about the team report cards was just so funny. So I encourage anybody to go read that. It was, it was really well done and just hilarious. Um, you do have to like walk a fine line though. I was always, when I was at Defector, I was always nervous. I was like, you know, I don't want to like make a joke that like someone is going to like take personally and then like be mad. Cause it's just like not worth that's, it's worth burning a bridge over actual reporting. It's not worth burning a bridge over the stupid tweet or, um, you know, a short post. So I'm always careful when I'm making jokes about the things that are obviously funny in the NFL, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like make anyone, I don't want to like, 
yeah, like burn a bridge that I didn't need to burn essentially. So I do try to be careful, but there are some things that are just like really funny. As you mentioned, like the, the rat problem in Jacksonville, like that's hysterical. And like with that, it's like, you can make a joke about that because the players literally put that into a, a survey. Like that's real. That is some real stuff that went on there. So that I'm like, all right, that's fine. And the players themselves were like Jamal Agnew had the funniest tweet. He was like, they weren't rats. They were emotional support mice. It was so funny. So like, even the players are like having a good time about that. So I think that's, always fun when you see like the players also poking fun at things that go on. So yeah, there are some things that are just like too good that you do have to react to. Okay, Alan, thank you so much. This was an absolute joy and I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. 